The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. Thank you for listening. For more information on Story City, you can find us online at storycitychurch.com or on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Story City Church. Surprise, it's me again. So fam, thank you. I appreciate that. Hello, it's good to see you. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Good morning. This is the Burbank location of Story City Church. Again, my name is Jared. I have the honor of being one of the pastors here. Story City exists to glorify God by leading communities into healthy relationships with Jesus and others. Now, some of you know this, but one of the ways that we are working to lead communities into healthy relationships is by focusing on foster care and adoption. In fact, it's our big deal here. There are almost 400,000 kids in the foster care system in the United States. 35,000 of them alone are here in Los Angeles. That means that we actually have the most kids in the system, not just numerically, but per capita. It's been reported that most of the kids who age out of foster care end up on the streets, in jail, or dead. Story City cares about this for a number of reasons. First, Scripture calls us to care for and seek justice for those who cannot find it themselves. Secondly, if we want to see communities experience true change in things like fatherlessness, abuse, drug abuse, recidivism, educational disparity, education in poor, uh, especially in poor communities, housing insecurity, food insecurity, and even sex trafficking, then we need to address those issues upstream because they are absolutely tied to the foster care system. Lastly, Story City cares deeply about life from womb to the tomb. We want to see all people, all people have the opportunity to live healthy lives physically, emotionally, spiritually, and economically. Now, why do I bring this up? Uh, partly because it's absolutely connected to our, our original statement, that they're, they're not separate, that our view in how we, how we see that the world needs to be treated, the way that we need to seek justice, the role of the church and community is absolutely tied, whether it's a foreign issue or whether it's a local issue, it's the same issue. And that's why I deferred prayer until now, because in a moment we're going to pray for both of these. But the reason I'm bringing this up this morning, specifically about foster care and adoption, is that Story City is constantly looking for ways that we can use our talents, our gifts, our abilities, and our passions to serve God's kingdom, especially in the area of foster care and adoption. And currently, we are in the process of shooting a documentary to raise awareness, to offer hope, and to call people to action. We've already filmed a portion of that documentary, and we're currently working on putting together the sizzle reel for that. The portion we filmed was about an organization in Costa Rica called Residents of Life. Residents of Life is a foster care adoption agency uh, operating as an orphanage in Costa Rica, and uh, they take the most difficult of cases. Children who've been trafficked, children with disabilities, children with large sibling groups, children who've experienced more than their fair share of trauma. In addition to providing them safety, education, therapy, and healing, they're sharing the hope of a true and better father. The scissor reel from our documentary will allow them the opportunity to raise funds from churches across the U.S. and abroad. It'll allow us to fundraise so that we can continue to to complete this project. And so we would ask that if you are willing to help with this stage of the uh, project, please reach out to Stephen Freakshley. His email is Stephen underscore F at storycitychurch.com. That's Stephen 
underscore, here, I'll go like this, Stephen <laughs> underscore F at storycitychurch.com, and he will get you plugged in. Here's my hope. My hope is that we will have this as a real ready-to-go November 17th. That's a Sunday, so we can show it in church that day. Here's why. Because all of the offerings that come in on November 17th, 100% of the offerings that come in that day are going to support residents of life. Okay? So be prepared for that. Also, if you can find a way to help um, get this sizzle reel up and going, please email Stephen Fritchley. We would be really stoked to get that going. And now, if you would, let us pray both for Israel and for those fighting injustice here in the United States. Father God, injustice is near and dear to your heart. In fact, every time we see your anger break out against Israel or against other nations, it is always tied to the treatment of people. It is always tied to the oppression, injustice, against violence against those who cannot stand up for themselves, the widow, the orphan, the poor, the immigrant, the broken, the marginalized. Father, your heart breaks for those who cannot stand up for themselves. And every time that you punished Israel, Often it had to do with their acting like the nations around them who forgot to care for those you had called them to care for. So we recognize now, Lord, that there is pain, there is tragedy, there is brokenness constantly. And Lord, it is brought absolutely to mind in this conflict in the Middle East. We thank you that you are there in the midst of it that you are there in the midst of violence and retaliation. You are there, Lord, whether it is justifiable or not justifiable is irrelevant. Father, you are for people. And you long to see people treated the way that you have called us to, to even love our enemies. And so, Lord, we just ask for peace. We ask for healing. We ask for the valuation of all life. Lord, we know that it is issues like this are commonplace even in our country. Lord, there are so many broken and marginalized people groups that have felt as if they are not treated like human beings. And so we ask that you would help us as a church to love people, to stand up for justice, to stand up for what's right, even if we don't agree with the cause, Father, to love people where they're at, to model what it looks like, and to lead them into relationships with you. Because you are the one who values life. You are the one who gave us life. You are the one who created us. And we long for all creation to be reconciled, restored to you. And so, Father, we pray that you would have your way and that you would burden our hearts for the broken, the marginalized, those who experience injustice, and that we would stand together in unity in your name to model you to the people around us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. We're continuing our series through the book of Philippians, and it's called Fight. Lindsay, where were you on that one? Okay, thank you. (laughs) You were supposed to yell fight. That's all right. It was an inside joke, sorry. Uh, Fight, pursuing joy through. And we've been talking about how we actually have to pursue joy. We have to fight for this attitude, this heart of joy. And in our last series, A Mentally Healthy Faith, Dr. Henry Cloud said that we have to 
to change our thinking and behavior, replace the unhealthy thinking and behavior with something new. Romans 12.2 says that we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. That means the Holy Spirit is literally helping us think differently. Do you know what? That's what the word repent means, to think differently about something. And so the Holy Spirit is helping us learn how to repent of our old ways of thinking. I know that's a big Christianese word, repent. But it really means to transform that way of thinking. And the Holy Spirit is helping us each and every day to transform, to change the way, to repent our thinking from previous and into a new way of thinking. And so this renewal comes about through the power of the Holy Spirit and is helped along by the church. And the church isn't like the administration. The church is us together. We together help each other out. How to have a heart and attitude of joy through the truth of Scripture. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a famous Welsh preacher, once said, God's people are meant to be people who are always rejoicing in the Lord. Another author writes, joy is entirely different than happiness. Happiness comes from the Latin word fortuna, which became the English word fortune and is related to cookies now. When my fortunes are good, then fortuna or happiness raises high. Conversely, when my fortunes are down, happiness drops through the floor. Happiness then is entirely based on circumstances of life and can be experienced by both believers and unbelievers. Happiness is fleeting temporary and fragile. It is a moment-by-moment experience that can flee as quickly as it comes. As the word indicates, my happiness is based upon my happenstance. Joy is different because true joy is not dependent on circumstances. Neither does it come from the things of this world. Authentic joy comes from having a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Real joy comes from knowing the Lord. The source of joy rises above our circumstances and cannot be drained by the surrounding situation. It is available in good times, in difficult times, in prosperity, and in poverty. For those taking notes today, this brings us to our big idea for the day. Our big idea for the day is this. We pursue joy by holding fast to the certainty of our salvation. We pursue joy by holding fast to the certainty of our salvation. Today we're going to see how to have that certainty by acknowledging that the qualification for, sa- for salvation is Christ. Christ is the qualification. That we must choose to value everything differently because we are valued differently. And that we must hold fast to our future hope by letting go of the past and learning from others on the journey. That's what today be all about. Let's go back and remind ourselves of Scripture. If you thought, hey, this was a little longer than normal, it's because it's the entire chapter 3. So today I'll be preaching entire chapter 3. Don't worry, I promise not to go over four hours, all right? We're good. It says this, in addition, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. Now, this is a statement. It's a command. It's not like, hey, I kind of hope you guys do. This is a statement. We're going to see this. To, To write to you again about this is no trouble for me, and it's a safeguard for you. Watch out for the dogs. Watch out for the evil workers. Watch out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the circumcision the ones who worship by the Spirit of God, boast in Christ Jesus and do not put confidence in the flesh. Although I have reasons for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew, born of Hebrews, regarding the law, a Pharisee, regarding zeal, persecuting the church, regarding righteousness that is in the law, blameless. But everything that was a gain to me I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. 
More than that, I also considered everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and considered them as dung, so that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. Not that I have already reached the goal or I'm already perfect, but I make every effort to take hold of it because I have also been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. Therefore, Let all of us who are mature think this way. And if you think differently about anything, God will reveal this to you also. In any case, we should live up to whatever truth we have attained. Join in imitating me, brothers and sisters, and pay careful attention to those who live according to the example you have in us. For I have often told you, and now say again with tears, that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is is destruction, their God is their stomach, their glory is in their shame. And they are focused on earthly things. Our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly wait for a savior from there. The Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humble condition. Into the likeness of his glorious body. By the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. Verses 1 to 11 are the foundations for the certainty that we're talking about. And then verses 12 to 21 are about how we really live day to day in that certainty. And Paul kicks off this section by refocusing us on what his message has been all along. That word in verse 1 is trans, that we translate in addition to or in addition. It includes this idea of from now on and for the remaining That word rejoice means to find our joy in. It's like pursuing joy in. And so what Paul is saying is, look, from here on out until Jesus returns, find and pursue joy in the Lord. That's that's what his command is. From now on, until Jesus comes, until the end of eternity, find and pursue joy in the Lord. That's a command from Paul. And he says, I don't mind writing about it because it's not a burden to me, presumably because he's passionate about this idea, and because he realizes that it benefits those who take it to heart by helping them hold on to joy in each and every circumstance. It's, look, it's, it's almost like the Bible's onto something here. Did you know there are four reasons the medical community would agree with Paul in this moment? First, for our mental health, people who frequently experience joy and gratitude tend to have lower levels of depression and anxiety. That seems like a pretty good deal to me. Physically, research has shown that positive emotions like joy and gratitude can be associated with lower stress levels, reduced inflammation, and even a stronger immune system. Also sounds like a benefit to me. Three, longevity. Some studies suggest that individuals who maintain a positive outlook on life and express gratitude may live longer. Eh, maybe. Number four, better coping. Joy and gratitude can help individuals better cope with challenging situations, which in turn can lead to improved mental and physical health 
outcomes. Joy is a benefit to our physical, spiritual, mental, and emotional bodies in addition to being something that, that God commands us to do, to pursue it. That's, that's a helpful thing to know. The God who designed us knows us better than we know ourselves. And through Paul, God shows us this path to physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual health. But again, the answer is, is that without the Holy Spirit, none of this is really attainable. I'm not saying we can't be healthy in some ways. I'm saying that true health comes from the pursuit of godly things, and God uses godly things to, to make us holistically healthy. Now, if we were generating this joy from within, it would be like happiness, and that it would have to come from this place of being able to conjure it out of how we're feeling. It would be from our own willpower. Frankly, to me, if we have to conjure something constantly out of our own willpower, even when we don't feel like it, it sounds inconsistent, exhausting, and really unsustainable, and that's at best. Okay, so we have a foundation for the importance of joy and why Paul doesn't just suggest we do it, but commands that we do it. And this brings us to verses 2 through 11 in our first observation for today. In order for us to pursue true joy, we must acknowledge that our qualification for salvation is Christ. In order for us to pursue true joy, we must acknowledge that our qualification for salvation is Christ. Now, if we don't know the background here, uh, verse 2 can seem a little weird. <laughs> what is he talking about? As Paul writes this letter, there's been this huge debate that's going on in the early church. It's been going on for some time, and it's centered around those who are converts to Christianity from outside of Judaism. Because Jesus is the Messiah long prophesied and promised and awaited for by the Jews, the question became how Jewish those following Christianity, the Messiah Jesus, needed to be. And the answer is a lot. Right? The, the, a lot. Jesus is the fulfillment of Jewish scriptures, and so all Jewish scriptures speak to him. It's why our Bible is filled with the Jewish scriptures. The Savior of the world is, re, is revealed through the Jewish people. The, Jesus is the fulfillment not only of those scriptures, but of the covenant promises of God. And so the answer is a lot, but it's also not fully. There's a whole contingent of believers who wanted all Christians to adopt and follow all Jewish customs, practices, things like purity laws, food laws, and circumcision in order to be considered true apprentices of Jesus. In particular, circumcision was one of the things that helped people know that they were Jewish. It was a very important part of that identity. In fact, it still is today. It has several important meanings that still stand today. It's a sign of the covenant. Circumcision stands as a physical and symbolic mark of the covenant between God and the Jewish people. It's a reminder of the unique and special relationship that Jews believe they have with God, and it signifies a commitment to living a life in accordance with God's commandments. It's like a promise. Second, it speaks to identity and belonging. Circumcision is still a rite of passage for Jewish boys, typically performed on the eighth day after birth, it's seen as the moment when a Jewish male enters into the covenant with God and becomes a full member of the Jewish community. It's a key element in shaping Jewish identity. Third, it symbolizes purification and holiness. Removing the foreskin symbolizes the removal of impurity and the pursuit of moral and spiritual purity. Lastly, it provides a connection to Jewish history. 
The practice of circumcision has been upheld by Jewish communities for thousands of years, serving as a link to Jewish history, tradition, and heritage. It's a tradition that's been passed down from generation to generation. It's a responsibility and a commitment. And so this act of circumcision signifies a commitment to uphold Jewish religious laws and values. It emphasizes the responsibility of Jewish individuals to live in accordance with the commandments and to maintain the covenant throughout their lives. So we can see how important this is to the Jewish people. We can see why those who are converting to going, well, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, we just need to invite people into this understanding of Judaism. There was never an intent, even by Paul, to create a new religion. That wasn't Paul's intent. Paul's intent was to show how Christ had changed our understanding of the law and had fulfilled the law in a way that now gave us freedom in Christ. And that was something that couldn't be really reconciled. And so you have this branch of Christianity that comes off, but it's not meant to be something different. It was always meant to be the fulfillment of the law or else Jesus wouldn't have come as the Jewish Messiah. And so Paul argues vehemently against this idea of making people who are outside of Judaism follow all of these rules and rites and, and, uh, and things that have been there for a long time. He says these traditions are, are not what we need to be following. And he says the reason is because, <coughs> excuse me, people are going are gonna to equate this understanding of you have to keep these things in order to be righteous. And that was what was true before Jesus became the fulfillment of the law. But after Jesus becomes the fulfillment of the law, he is the law, and now everything gets fulfilled in him. We do no longer have to sacrifice any longer. This is why there's no sheep up here this morning. Amen. It's yes, exactly. And Paul says, look, we, we have to understand that now our salvation is not earned by our works. Our salvation is now earned entirely by the grace of God and the faith that God gives us. Now, this became such a big debate that eventually... He and the other apostles had a council on it in Jerusalem. They meet. And Paul and Peter are advocates for the Gentiles being included. It becomes a debate. And, and even Peter struggles with this. At times he's for it. At times he's against it. But Paul and him have this, uh, this affinity that they understand that this is what God has called them to. And so all the apostles actually have come to this agreement we see in Acts chapter 15. And James, Jesus' brother, stands up and says this. In Acts 15, 28 to 29. For it was the Holy Spirit's decision and ours not to place further burdens on you besides these requirements. That you abstain from food offered to idols, from blood, that means eating blood, from eating anything that has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. You will do well if you keep yourselves from these things. Farewell. That's the answer. Farewell. That's it. Nothing, not, not more, not less. This is it. Like, hey, this is what we got. This is what we came to. And while the issue had been clearly decided by the apostles and had been spread from Jerusalem, there was a whole party that refused to believe or refused to agree with that. And they were traveling all over the known world, spreading confusion and dissension as they tried to spread their message. Uh, the circumcision party is what they were called. And in verses 2 to 11, Paul responds to their line of thinking. He's constantly under attack by them, saying that he's a false teacher because he's teaching them not to obey these laws. And he's going, this is a problem. And so he's constantly under attack. The churches are constantly hearing this opposite message. And so Paul responds and shows why this goes out against it. Now, verse 2, watch out for the dogs. I wish I could tell you this is one of those ways that the, the translators of scriptures, um, we don't do justice for the sake of our sensibilities. This is a cuss word. Okay? 
it's, it's a, it was a derogatory, maybe a light cuss word, but it's a derogatory comment that the Jews used to use for people outside of Judaism. It's a dis, disrespect, disdain for. So cuss word, light cuss word, depends on how you look at it, but still, it's not a positive word that he's using, and he's purposefully using it on these people. So watch out for these people. Watch out for the evil workers. Watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. That's what he's talking about when he says mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, the ones who worship by the Spirit of God, boast in Christ Jesus, and do not put confidence in the flesh. He's saying, look, we are now ourselves, those who are living out this grace, we are the pictures of that. By walking in Jesus, with Jesus, we are now the pictures of that commitment. We stand for all the things that circumcision stood for, and so we don't need it anymore because we have become that symbol. The church is that symbol now. So we don't need to accomplish that ourselves. It's good. And then he goes into this list of all the reasons, if he was going off of his works, that he would have to brag in. He says, look, if our salvation was about being holy or good enough to be saved, I would be talking about my qualifications, I mean, if anybody has a right to brag about how good and righteous they were following Scripture, Jewish laws, customs, and traditions, would be me. And he gives us that list to back it up. But he shows in no uncertain terms that none of that is where he finds his certainty. None of that matters to him. In fact, he's rejected all of his qualifications, and he considers them, well, once again, we come to that sensibility piece, because in verse 8, that word dung is not dung. It's stronger than that. Verse 8, more than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as bleep so that I might gain Christ. That's an emphatic statement by Paul. Right? I'm, I'm not trying to be like hip or cool and be the cussing pastor. I'm just trying to tell you, like this is, this is there's a, sometimes when we read scripture, we're like, you know, we, we picture the little halo over the person's head, and there's like angelic music when they're talking. Like, that was not what it was with Paul, right? Paul is this embattled guy who's going to war, and he's this little tiny guy who's been, you know, hit with rocks in the head way too many times. He's not the most exciting preacher. It says at one point, some dude falls asleep, falls out the window, and dies because of his preaching. You guys have a lot to be thankful for. At least I didn't kill any of you with my preaching, right? And Paul is so emphatic on this point. He's like, look, you guys got to get this. This is a point you must understand. None of this matters anymore. The gospel is that God himself has come to rescue and renew all creation through the person and work of Jesus. That because of the sins that we choose and the sins we were born into, we were dead spiritually and had no hope of waking ourselves. But Jesus took on the punishment and suffering for our sins by becoming the sacrifice that fulfilled the law's requirements. In doing so, Jesus ushers in a new kingdom where those who apprentice him as Lord and God and King over every aspect of their lives, those who confess him above themselves, become citizens of this new kingdom and are considered justified and righteous because of his name and his works, not their own. But he goes further not just leaving us at ground level zero, but adopting us into the family of God and making them sons and daughters. As those people apprentice Jesus, he, through the Holy Spirit, continues to restore their brokenness and make them more and more and more the way we were intended to be. Because they're now adopted into God's family, they're brothers and sisters in that same family. And then we become the church when God brings a group of family members together for the same mission and purpose. What is that mission? 
to model who God is as family, servant, missionary, to teach and show others about Jesus and to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, to love God with everything we are and have and to love our neighbors, even our enemies, as ourselves. But none of that has anything to do with us being good or righteous or qualified. Nothing in that story is about us earning our salvation or getting it. It's about God gifting it to us even though none of us deserve it. And so our salvation is because God is good and God has chosen us, not because we've done anything special. For those taking notes today, this is our second observation. We choose to value everything differently because we have been valued differently. God didn't choose us because we're worthy or because he looked ahead in human history and went, well, they might choose me, therefore I'll choose them. Because if we did that, that would mean that we are actually the authors of our own salvation. Salvation would hinge on our choice to choose God, and we cannot naturally choose God. Our natures, our character are broken because of sin. And so everything we receive, salvation, forgiveness, grace, adoption into God's family, all of that has been given to us freely and without merit. Here's the beauty. You cannot lose what you do not own The Bible says salvation belongs to God. We cannot own our own salvation. Therefore, we're not in control of whether we lose it or not. We can't lose something that doesn't belong to us. A couple years ago, I had flown uh, enough that I finally started getting some benefits to the airlines. Right? It was kind of this special moment. I'm like, yay, I might possibly get an upgrade. (laughs) I get a free piece of luggage. Wow. You know, it's like the, the really cool stuff. Um, <laughs> and it took a lot of flying, and then you lose it just as fast, right? Uh, this Recently, I was talking to a member of our church, and they were talking about their status, which includes, like, completely private entrances to LAX, uh, special concierge services, totally different lounge experiences, and um, uh, luxury cars that take you right off the plane to your next gate so you don't have to walk amongst the common people. Can you imagine if that's how our experience with God was? Like, all right, let's look at your miles, uh, your balance sheet here, which is like Santa's naughty or nice list, right? All right, you get, I'm um, looking here, you get two blessings and uh, five hardships this month, but I do have to let you know, sir, that uh, one of those blessings is a rollover from last month, so you're really going to have to step up your devotion and prayer game if you want to catch up, right? Or, I'm so sorry, Mr. Ocelier, but Mrs. Ocelier is much higher status, and so we're going to need to bump you from this relationship with God. You're welcome to fly standby. In the meantime, I really hope you enjoy Salt Lake City. Right? Paul's values and goals have changed because of what God did for him. He used to value righteousness from the law. He used to value all of his status points. He used to value what he had earned by being really good. And his goal was to be the best at that. But in light of Jesus, everything has changed in his values and his goals. My friend, Pastor Reuben Carls, writes this of Philippians chapter 3. He says, there's a book by a man named Ernest Becker, and in his book, The Denial of Death, Becker contends that much of human behavior is driven by our attempts to deny or transcend our morality. We create belief systems, cultural institutions, and personal achievements to convince ourselves that we are immortal or that our lives have lasting significance. But Philippians 3 goes head-on with the ideas of Becker, particularly with his chapter 7, The Heroic Quest. 
Here, Becker suggests that individuals often pursue heroic endeavors such as achieving, achieving fame, wealth, or power to validate their existence and compensate for their fear of death. These quests are driven by a desire to attain a sense of personal significance. People commonly chase personal significance through either one, romantic partners, the belief that if one, only one finds the right person romantically, then they attain personal significance. Two, personal distinctiveness. For example, if a person sets themselves apart from common man through talent, appearance, wealth, education, or achievement, then they become significant. In other words, a person's pursuit of high achievement, which in essence they're setting themselves apart, is a means to their personal significance. And three, community, which is when joining a particular group brings a person's significance. For example, when a young person joins a university, a gang, or a sports team, they experience a sense of worth. Now, Becker's points can't be denied Reuben writes, however, the Apostle Paul in the book of Philippians counters Becker's ideas, mainly because of the surpassing worth of Christ, Philippians 3.8. For instance, the Apostle Paul, one, did not have a romantic partner, yet did not experience a sense of unworthiness. Two, he was distinct from the common man, circumcised in the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regards to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law Faultless, Philippians 3, 5 to 6. And third, Paul was a part of the Pharisaical community and a Roman citizen, both which were favorable communities. And so in all aspects of Paul's life, he did not derive his personal significance from Becker's notion of significance. In fact, or instead, he found profound meaning and purpose through his faith in Christ, transcending the pursuits outlined by Becker and finding his ultimate worth in a higher source. Paul finds significance, value, and worth in his new identity in Jesus, his role in building the kingdom, and even in the suffering and pain it cost him, all so he can hold to or find value in his faith. Verse 10, Paul says, My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. Verse 11, Assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from the death from among the dead. Not that I've already reached the goal or I'm already perfect, but I make every effort to take hold of or to value it because I have been taken hold of or valued by Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it or to value it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. In verse 15, Paul gives us some hope as we journey on the path of learning to value the things from a kingdom perspective. Paul's like, look, I I know this is hard. He writes, therefore, let all of us who are mature think this way. So as he's saying, look, as we mature in Christ, we're going to begin to think this way. This is what we're supposed to be doing. And if you don't, if you think differently about it, God will reveal this to you. And so Paul challenges us, change our thinking, pursue this change of our mind, this change of our heart. But don't worry, simultaneously, he tells us, the Holy Spirit's there to help you, to show us where our thinking still needs to change. And then in verse 16, he offers us grace. He says, in any case, we should live up to whatever truth we've attained. Paul's like, look, I don't expect you to live up to all of it. This is why we're being transformed day by day. Just just do what you know so far. Don't worry about the other stuff. Just live up to that. You don't have to have it all figured out. Work with what you've got. Because the Holy Spirit will help us grow in spiritual maturity. If we go back to that lesson a couple of weeks ago, it talked about how we need the Holy Spirit in the church. That's how God works in us. He uses the people around us, church, to help us grow. For those taking notes today, this is our third and final observation for the day. 
We hold fast to our future hope by letting go of the past and learning from others on the journey. We hold fast to our future hope by letting go of the past and learning from others on the journey. In order to move practically to a new way of thinking and into biblical joy, Paul reminds us, instead of getting caught up in the things that used to happen or that we used to value or going back to those things, right? It's natural to kind of go back to those things, especially when things get hard. Instead of doing that, we pursue joy by pushing forward into a new way of thinking. To do that, we have to let go of the old things and hold fast to the new. That's what he says when he says, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what is ahead. Now, how does Paul want us to do that? He says he wants us to reach ahead through the Holy Spirit in the church. And so Paul sums up his points for this section in verses 17 to 19. He says, I am doing everything I can to model Jesus for you. So walk with me as I model Jesus for you. Now, it's important to understand, Paul's not trying to create a bunch of little Pauls running around. Paul is trying to help people look like Jesus, not like Paul. It's why uh, everything Paul does points to Jesus. Everything he does reflects Jesus. It's why he sacrificed so much and he values counting all the things that were personal successes previously as loss because gaining Jesus and helping others become more like Jesus is worth everything to Paul. I don't know, we might have heard Jesus say something like, two commands sum up all scripture, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and the second is equal to it, to love your neighbor as yourself. That's exactly what Paul is living out. But Paul also points out that there are some bad examples of following Jesus out there. And so Paul encourages us, he says, to pay careful attention. That word means turn our attention to something and with reason and examination, respond then accordingly. So he calls us to act, but he says, make sure that you, that you look at Scripture and understand Scripture and know if what we're talking about is Scripture before you start modeling what somebody else is doing. Once you do and you feel that, that those areas, that area of that life is biblical, then act accordingly and model that. Paul is challenging to first see what, the, what he is doing in scripture that aligns up with the gospel, and secondly, to imitate those godly behaviors so they can continue to learn and grow in their maturity and in their ability to bring others along as well. Verse 17, join in imitating me, brothers and sisters, and pay careful attention to those who live according to the example you have in us. For I have often told you, and now say again with tears, that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their stomach, their glory is their shame, and they are focused on earthly things. And finally, Paul ends chapter 3 by pointing us back to the why, back to the reason for the certainty that we have. He says in verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await for our Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. Family, we have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved when one day Jesus returns to finally restore and renew all things. We have learned today that we pursue joy by holding fast to the certainty of our salvation We learned how to have that certainty by acknowledging that our qualification for salvation is Christ, that we must choose to value everything else differently because we've been valued differently, and that we must hold fast to our future hope by letting go of the past and learning from others on the journey. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we conclude this time of worship and service, We stop to reflect on what you've said to us through praise and scripture.
We express our gratitude for all you are doing in us and through us. As we prepare to leave, we ask that you would help us to love you and everyone around us with all we are and have. May the way we live bring you glory and may we carry the message of your love and grace with us wherever we go. And now to this community of Christ's apprentices, we pronounce this benediction. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of the Father, and the unity of the Holy Spirit abide with us always. May our love for Jesus and people be continually growing. Go and be the church.